This is the evening sermon from Hillcrest Bible Church in Portland, Oregon. Pastor Gary W. Custis is preaching. For more information on Hillcrest Bible Church, please visit our website at hillcrestbible.org. Our subject for the uh, past uh, couple of Sunday mornings has been on the, the glory of God. And in the Old Testament, when you speak of glory, the Old Testament word for glory refers to heaviness, which is sort of an interesting way of thinking of glory because when you think of, of glory, you might think of, of light and uh, something that does not have uh, weight, but it's, it's not speaking of physical weight, it's speaking of weightiness in the sense of worthiness. Weightiness, heaviness, uh, worthiness of, of reputation and, and honor. And when it speaks of the glory of God, it speaks of, the, of, of His being worthy of all the praise, all the worship, all the honor, all the glory uh, that should ever be received for anything whatsoever in uh, His universe. The New Testament word refers to um, the idea of to, to recognize or to honor, uh, to praise, to celebrate. And it's, it's almost like the New Testament word sort of emphasizes the response to the glory where the Old Testament speaks of the heaviness of that glory. And both of those are aspects of, of uh, glory that we need to understand as we think of glory from a biblical perspective. And so the, the usage of these words with reference to God leads to you know, a, a greater understanding for us. And, and you should think of it in terms of, of certain aspects when you think of the glory of God. First, you should, speak, you, you should think of that which comes forth from God. When you think of the glory of God, there is something that emanates from His nature, the perfection of His nature. Sometimes you can think of this in terms of light because it's revealed as light in certain references both in the Old Testament and in the New. The, the glory of God. And you see like this, this glory that comes forth from Him. But it's not just light. It's the, the weightiness of, of His nature, the, the perfection of God. And when you think of all the attributes of God, when you think of His love and His mercy and His goodness and His faithfulness, you need to think of those qualities to the nth degree, to infinity. To, there is the, the perfection of all of, of God's uh, characteristics. So glory is that which emanates from the perfection of God. Second, we can think of glorifying God, or the, the glory that then is directed at God. And here I think we have a, a, a better, or at least a, a more familiar idea of what glory means, because we say, well, let us come together, let us sing to the glory of God. Let us recognize who He is, and how that has changed our hearts and lives, and let us give Him the glory. So we say, thank you, God, for saving me. That's to glorify. Thank you, God, for, being, for loving me and being the, the, the essence of, of, of really what perfect love is. Thank you for being faithful. And, and when we, we receive the benefits of God and then we give them back to Him, the receiving is receiving that which He is. And that's the heaviness of God. And then we are transformed and changed by that, and we, we glorify Him, we thank Him, and we praise Him, and we honor Him for that which He is. That also is a part of the glory of God. And so there's a third aspect of the glory of God, and that is that it must be recognized. I said that when God shines forth His purity, when God shines forth His perfection, it shines it forth for us to receive. There is the, the reception of that truth or the reception of the glory of God that transforms our hearts and lives, at which point we direct that back to Him. So it's... The, the, a glory must be recognized. 
And finally, the glory of God, if it must be recognized, must be specifically given to us. Every one of God's creation is responsible to glorify God. But we all know that lost sinners do not glorify God. They don't receive the perfection of God and see the perfection of God. They're not transformed by that. And they don't give Him the glory. And you say, well, how is it that we have received that? And the answer is the grace of God. God has to open our eyes. And we see the Lord Jesus Christ, and we see that Jesus Christ reveals the Father, and we see who Jesus Christ is, and we see who the Father is, and we receive His love, and we receive uh, all of His grace in perfection, and we say, glory be to God. And so it, it must be seen, and it is seen always um, by the grace of God that He gives to us. And what's interesting when you talk about glory, you come to the place where you recognize from a biblical standpoint that only God can reveal His glory. Only God is worthy of glory. God and man can recognize God's glory. And God and man can glorify God. And the prayer that we're looking at in John chapter 14 is a prayer where um, the Son is saying, I have glorified you. Now give me the glory that I so richly deserve that I had with you when before the world began. So I know that the Father and the Son and the Spirit glorify one another because they see the perfection of the persons of the Godhead, though there is one God one heart of God, one mind of God, one will of God. There's one God in three persons. And there's a, a mystery when we think of, of that, but we know that in the three persons you have, they are co-equal, and, and yet they are distinct. So I speak to you in a mystery. I can say the words, I can describe it. I can't really tell you exactly what that looks like. I can tell you what it looks like biblically from the distinctions that you have in the Bible and the unity that you have, but it's very hard for us to think of one God in three persons. And the only example of that is God. There's no earthly example. There's no physical example of that great truth. But God glorifies God, and then because we have been transformed by God's grace, we see His perfections, and we glorify God. So deserving, you know, God's deserving glory should be obvious to all, should be seen by all mankind, but it's not seen by the natural man. But it is seen by the spiritual man. It's seen by us, and it's seen by grace. So we as Christians see the weightiness of God, His worthiness of glory. And we are transformed by Him, and we glorify Him. And we will do so both now and forever. But what I want to do this evening is I want to go to Philippians and I want to look at, at Jesus Christ in this process because it is so interesting to understand his prayer in John 17 where he says, I have glorified you, now glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the earth began. So something has happened with reference to the glory of Jesus Christ, and you come to Philippians chapter 2, and that something that has happened is explained here in this text. Now, it's explained here in this text, but I want you to know that when you hear the explanation, you're going to say, okay, that's the explanation. And I'm not sure I completely understand the explanation, and if that's uh, what you get from, from this passage, uh, then so be it. But uh, there are many times that we can say what is taking place in, in Scripture, what is taking place with God, and say, this is what it is, and we will understand in a greater way when we stand in the presence of the Lord. And then we, shall, we know in part now, we shall know in full uh, when we see Him. But Philippians is, uh, in Philippians uh, chapter 2, we have a passage of Scripture that is talking about 
the, the proper mindset of the Christian. And um, let me just, uh, it's, it's interesting the way in which the Apostle Paul goes from the proper mindset of the Christian and then uses Jesus Christ as an example of that proper mindset, the proper attitude. And when he does, he touches on things that are so wonderful that I know that this is one of the passages that really emphasizes the inspiration of the Spirit of God because I don't think the Apostle Paul would try to touch this subject if it were not from the inspiration of the Spirit of God because this is... This is truly wonderful. You could say, have the same, have a humble attitude, and just, you all know what humble is, so be humble and uh, put others first before. But what he uses is he uses Christ and this whole issue of the glory of God here in this text and gives an explanation of, of, that helps us to better understand John chapter 17. So he says in this passage, let me look at uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1. I really want to focus in on verses 5 through 8, but let me look at uh, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, in humility of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, the command is very clear. I mean, he's looking at the church in Philippi, and he says um, in verses 1 and 2, if there is any of these things, and the answer is, there is all of those things. So he's not saying maybe there is and maybe there isn't when he speaks of these things. He says, if there is any consolation in Christ, is if, there's any, if you find any encouragement in Christ, and there is encouragement in Christ, if any comfort of love, and there is comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, and there is fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and mercy, there is affection and mercy. He says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and one mind. And then he's going to tell you how that happens. How is it that you can fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord. How can, can you have this kind of, of unity? And so he says this, and this is what we individually take to heart. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or, or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for, your own, for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And you look at this and he says, uh, he speaks of the importance of, of others and also the interests of others. So he says, if you're going to have this unity, you have to become not a self-interested person, but an other-interested person. And this only by the grace that God gives us. And, and the, the command and the exhortation is complete when he makes that statement in verse 4. And, and yet he turns and uses this great example. And when he uses this great example, he reveals to us insight into our understanding of, of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So here are the verses I want us to focus in on. And he says this, let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, or he, this, the text can be rendered, but he emptied himself, and we'll talk about that expression, to make himself of no reputation, to empty himself, taking the form of a servant, the word really is the word doulos, it's the word slave, to take the form of a slave. That's also an important word. And coming in the likeness of men. 
And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So his point is, in this passage, unity. And he says, if you're going to have unity, you have to have this humility of mind that he speaks of in verse 3 by having a, a pursued attitude of mind. And we're to have the same attitude in our hearts that Christ had and has in his heart. And it's... it's um, I'm going to describe this in terms that I want you to know never happened. But I'm going to describe it in these terms. It's as if the father turns to the son and says to the son, and this, this is totally thinking not of one God and three persons, this is thinking of three gods, but in uh, this, you'll have to excuse the illustration, but it's as if the father turns to the son and he says, I have a mission for you. And, and Jesus Christ would say, and what is the mission? God the Father, God the Son have one heart, one mind, so that's not possible. He says, well, what is the mission? He says, I want you to go to earth, and I want you to forego your right as being God and revealing your heaviness, your worthiness to receive glory. And I want all that to be not seen. I want you to take the, f the form of a slave. I want you to take the form of mankind, and I want you to accomplish the, the ministry and the atoning work. And then I want you to return and be, and, and be glorified. I want you to then be fully glorified. And Jesus Christ being when you think of the triune God, you should think Father, Son, Holy Spirit, co-equal. And then you should also think Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they are, there's a distinction in the Godhead. And Jesus Christ knows that He is fully God, co-equal with the Father, co-equal with the Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one, co-equal, and yet distinct in their person, persons. And Jesus Christ says, yes, I'll go. Now, in the Old Testament, whenever Jesus Christ appeared, or mostly when he appeared, uh, he appeared in the glorious display of the Son of God, the glorious display of God. And if you want to see that, you can see that when Jesus Christ appeared uh, before Moses on Mount Sinai. And when you see him appearing on Mount Sinai, the whole mountain is shaking. And uh, God tells Moses, tell the people to get back away from the mountain, tell them not to touch the mountain. This is a, the, the, the holy place where God is. And it's like, this, it's so awesome, the people are standing back, and Moses says, I'll go up and, and I'll receive the word of God, I'll receive the law of God, and I'll come back. And the people said, great idea. That's, that's good. You go, we'll stay here. And they stood back from the mountain because they stood in awe of this. And when you see the glory of God appearing in the tabernacle and in the temple, the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord fills the temple in such a way that the people cannot go near. And this is the glorious presentation. But that's not what God the Father is speaking to the Son about when he talks about the incarnation. And when he talks about the ministry, and when he talks about the, the atoning work, and his crucifixion, and his death. He said, I want, you, I want you to appear as a man, and the heaviness shall not be seen. Does that mean that Jesus Christ, when he becomes a man, is less than God? Well, that cannot be. It's who he is. He is fully God, fully man and yet without sin, but he's fully man, but he is fully God. The babe in the manger, the young boy, the man, he is fully man, fully God at all times. That's, do I fully understand that? No, I have no idea what that looked like, and it's hard for me to think about that, but I just know that's who he is. But I do know that 
when you looked at Jesus, and the Old Testament says this as well, there's nothing about looking at him that would cause you to say, oh, this is, this is somebody special. And usually people think of that in terms of him being maybe attractive or looking like what you might think of when you think of the Son of God. But what it really means is they, they looked at him, he said, he just looked like a man. He just looked like another man. I don't think that meant that Jesus was handsome or ugly. I don't think it has anything to do with either of those things. I think it meant that he had nothing about him in his display. He had no halo. He had no glow. He had no sense of the perfect and the perfection of God so that people, when they saw him, they fell down in his presence. He had just appeared as a man. And the, the, the passage explains this, this process. He says, have the attitude that is in, in yourselves that was in Christ Jesus. Because here he goes on this mission. Because it says specifically, he existed in the form of God. Well, we already know that. He is God. Fully God. He's not like God. He is God. And he's in the form of God as the Father is in the form of God, as in the Son and the Spirit are also in the form of God. He is God. And just simply saying the form of God is to indicate that that's his existence. But he also had a perspective, and his perspective is this. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't say, I'm, no, you've asked me to do this, I'm not going to do this. That's that, not going to happen in the Godhead anyway, but just saying. But it's not, and, and, and these words are sometimes hard for us to understand, but it's not like him saying when the Father said, I want you to, to forego the full display of your glory. That Jesus Christ said, no, I'm, no, I, I'm going to hold on. To, I, I have to hold on to that. But it's describing in the context of the humility of my mind and having a regard for others and having a regard even for God more so than himself. And this God who is a sovereign God is also a humble God. And he displays this humility in the incarnation and in the ministry of Jesus Christ upon the cross. And so when the Father sends the Son, the Son comes willingly. And He says, I will take on the form of human flesh. And I'm not going to hold on to the full display of my glory the full weightiness of my character. So, and, and you think of, of the weightiness of the character, and perhaps one of the ways you can think of this is just in, in terms of gravity. You know, I was looking at how f fast things move in our, our universe, and you look at the speed of light is the fastest, obviously, moving thing in our universe. But <clears throat> when you look at what man makes, and how man sends rockets to Mars and sends all these uh, spaceships. But one of the things that's very interesting is that if you take the same spaceship and you launch it away from the sun and you take the very same rocket or whatever they have in outer space and you launch it at the sun, the same rocket with the same capability will travel much faster as it's going toward the sun in this vacuum of the outer space than the one that's going away. And you say, well, why is that? And the answer is because of the gravitational pull of the sun. And the gravitational pull of the sun is such that when you go towards the sun and when you send something, the same object, towards the sun, it will travel faster because the sun is, is you know, pulling. We look at the sun as shooting out the, the, the glory of the sun. There's a sense in which it's sort of an image of God because it's like shooting out the glory of the sun, but the same thing, it has the heaviness that draws everything towards itself. And that's a, a, a good image of God when you think of, 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 of Jesus Christ. He says, I'm going to stand before mankind as a man. But there's something he has to forego, and that is the weightiness of his perfection. Otherwise, everyone would be drawn to him in terms of the glory of God, and, and the radiance of his glory would be seen. So what happens when Jesus Christ comes to the earth is he has to, there's, there's the foregoing of something. 
And here's what it's talking about, the foregoing of something in this passage. It doesn't tell us how this takes place. It just tells us what happens. But he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, being co-equal with God. But it says in verse 7, but he emptied himself. Now that expression, as you said this morning, has been uh, an expression that, that people think about and talk about and, and many... Uh, explanations and interpretations of that statement have been given. And uh, some people say, well, he emptied himself of his deity. But he did not empty himself of his deity. I don't know how that it's possible to empty yourself of, of his deity because he is God. It's what he is. So he can't cease to be what he is. And... Um, he can't cease to, and he can take a form of a man, but he can't cease to be the, the God that he is. And that's not what it means. If it meant that, then, you know, the many passages where Jesus Christ is, is performing miracles could not take place if he was just a man. Furthermore, the atoning work of God could not take place if he was just a man. If he was just a man and the perfect man, and God sent him and, and he divested all of his... his uh, his deity, then he would not be of eternal value. And he could not accomplish this. He could have saved one person, one other person. It certainly wouldn't have been me. It would have probably been one of the disciples or someone else, but it wouldn't have been maybe David or Solomon or somebody. I don't know, but it wouldn't have been me. But he could save one person because he has one life to give. But if he is, is the son of God, he's of infinite value. And he can suffer and die upon the cross in a matter of hours and pay for our eternal salvation. He is of eternal value, and that's necessary for his atoning work on the cross. So he did not cease to become God. He did not empty himself of deity and just simply be a good man. And there are people who believe that Jesus was simply a good man, and they're wrong. He is God. And some say, well, <clears throat> he emptied himself of, uh, of, of the display of his deity. And I think that's probably a more accurate rendering of this, but the text itself explains it. And I think that sometimes we, we take a, a term like he emptied himself and we want to run off and try to define the whole terms, but it says what it means here in the passage. Grammatically, it says what it means because it says, it says, who in verse 6, being in the form of God, did not consider Robert to be equal with God, he emptied himself. He made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself. How did he do that? Well, the participles describe how he did that. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a slave and coming in the likeness of men. Taking the form of a slave. Why does it say, doesn't just say taking the form of a man? Because he was in the form of God. He takes the form of a slave. Why does it say a slave? Some of the translations are bondservant. Bondservant was a nice way of saying slave when the translation of the Bible was, I mean, was translated in English because slavery was um, one of the things that was being um, prohibited in England. And so the translation, the early translations made up a new word and used the word bond slave. But the word is slave. And a slave is one who has a will, but a slave does not have the freedom to operate on the basis of his will. In other words, a slave does not get up in the morning and say, what am I going to do today? Well, I think I'd like to go and do some shopping. I think I'd go and do this. I think I'd do some, run some errands. I think I'd like to go and work in the yard, do these things. A slave doesn't say that. A slave wakes up in the morning and says, what does the master want me to do? What does the master want me to do? Because a slave... 24 hours of the day and seven days of the week is a slave. And a slave is obligated to follow the will of the master. And it is very interesting that God would use that word with reference to Jesus Christ. And you say, well, who is he a slave to? And the answer is, the text does not say he takes the form of a slave, but he's He's really enslaved to the will of God. And that's why I said everything that Jesus did on earth was according to God's will. Every miracle he performed, God told him to perform. 
Every sermon that he preached, God told him to preach that sermon. Every person he greeted, God told him. The whole of the ministry of Jesus Christ was one in which he was doing the will of the Father because he makes that very clear. He says, when you see me working, you see the working of the Father. You see what he is doing. And so Jesus Christ comes and he says, I, I'm not coming here. And this is, plays into and, and fully reveals this whole idea of humility not being so. He said, I'm, I'm not pursuing the things, my interests. I'm pursuing the interests of the Father. I'm pursuing the will of God. Now that's a very complicated thing to say when you're thinking of one God, three persons, one heart, one mind, one will of God. But it's Jesus Christ submitting himself to be enslaved to the will of God and to do exactly what God tells him to do. And that's what he did. And that's why Jesus Christ, when he comes in John 17, he says, I have accomplished everything that you've given me to do. I have done it. The way I've done it has been perfect, and the result of my doing it is perfect. So the means and the end are both perfect because that's exactly what Christ has done. And so he says, and having done all of this, I'm worthy of your praise. The praise that I had with you before the world began, before the whole of this creation was made, before the sinfulness of man, before the whole work of this atoning, before any of this, it is God with God in infinite glory. And he says, though I have accomplished this great, I am worthy now to be in that same place of glory. He's not a secondary God. He's not a tarnished God. He's not one who has somehow made himself to be less, and so now he's forever less because of what he did in the atoning sacrifice and dying upon the cross and associating with sinners and but he took the form of a slave. He came and he did the will of God. And that is a demonstration of his, of the humility. And humility is a character trait of God that is perfect. All of his characteristics are perfect, but he displayed perfect humility. And the coming of Jesus Christ and the incarnation is the display of the perfect humility of God. It's why he is worthy of glory. So he comes and he says, he took the form of a slave coming in the likeness of men. If you look back at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, when God created man, there's something he said about the creation of man that is not true of animals. When he made man, he said, I'm, we're going to make man in the image and the likeness of God. And being made in the image of God means that man is... God's representative here upon the earth. This is a very special relationship. Uh, you know, the animals of the field and uh, all other human li or animal life does not have this capacity. God made man in his own image that he might be his representative and in his likeness that he might resemble God. So when God made man, he made man specially for God. We resemble God. That means we can think about God. And we can communicate with God. And we have this, this special fellowship with God and relationship with Him. We're specially made for Him. Of all of the creation, and the creation of God is, is a wonderful creation, and you have all these animals and all these trees and all these living things, and they all have the life of God in them that live. Everything that lives has the life of God. But when God made man, he said, I'm going to make man in the image and my image and my likeness because there's going to be this special fellowship and special relationship that I have with man. He's going to be my representative upon the earth, and he's going to be just like me. 
So that's why we think about God. And that's why when we are Christians, we can have the characteristics of God granted to us where we can be loving and we can be humble and we can be kind and we can have God communicate with us the characteristics that only He possesses because we're made like Him to have fellowship with Him and to, to, to really be in communion with Him. Union and communion. So man was made in the image of likeness of God. And now God says to Jesus Christ, I want you to be made in the image of man. I want you to be made, excuse me, in the likeness. I want you to be like man. So I want you to go as one who is enslaved to the will of God to demonstrate your humility in submitting to the will of the Father. This is amazing. And I want you to resemble a man. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did. So that's why I said, when you said, which is more glorious? The shepherds in the field, when the angels of the Lord appear in the glory of God, and they go, whoa, this is something very special. And they say glory, and the angels say glory to God in the highest. This is the, the announcement that the Messiah, the Son of God, is present. And they said, you'll find him wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger, lying in a feeding trough. Well, the announcement is glorious. And they go looking for Jesus. And again, we said this this morning, but they go looking for Jesus. And they go looking to Bethlehem, and they're looking for a baby in a feeding trough wrapped in cloth, common cloth. And there he is. Now you've got to wonder what they're thinking. It says they go away praising God. So clearly they're thinking because of the glorious announcement, they look at this and they say, this is amazing. This is what God is doing. But the Christ, the, 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 the Son of God, He's just a baby. I'm sure they looked at him and said, well, he just looks like an ordinary baby. He just looks like a baby. Is there anything special about it? Is there anything? And they look, and you could look, and maybe they said to Mary, is there anything? Does he talk now? I mean, what, 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 is there anything going on here that would you know, demonstrate some kind of, of, of weightiness? Uh, uh, to show that he is, he, this baby is worthy of glory. And they say, well, no, there's, there's nothing that, you know, in the Christmas time they're saying, Mary, did you know? Well, she knew because of what the Lord told her. That's what she knew. But by looking at Jesus, did she know that this is the Son of God? Well, she knew exactly what she was told. But looking at this would be very amazing. This is just this baby, and I don't know what a perfect baby was like, but this is one perfect baby. And I know he was perfect as a baby, and I know that he was perfect as a little boy, and he's perfect as a teenager, and this is a perfect, this is, this is the perfection, the perfect teenager. Never been seen on earth before. We've all been teenagers, but never a perfect teenager. Never before, but this one. Don't you want to know what that looked like? And you, know, you say, well, is there anything in Scripture? No, there's nothing in Scripture that describes that. I'd kind of like to see it. But what you would see is that he was a young man, sinless. Wow. But the weightiness that would draw like gravity the worship to him was not there. So he looks like a young man, and then he looks like a man, and he's working with his father. We don't really know anything about his, his early life because it's just in the form of a man. But Jesus Christ engaged in this, uh, and then it takes another step. This passage ends with, and being found in appearance as a man. We can talk about what does it mean to empty himself? Did he turn off his, his 
the use of his deity, did, you know, we can speak of all these kind of terms and try to understand it, but the, the text says just what it wants us to understand is, here's this one who is in the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men and found in appearance as a man. So his weightiness that would draw the glory to him, the weightiness that when the when the angels appeared in the field and the shepherds saw them, there's going to be a sense in which they are radiating the glory of God and there's a drawing to the glory of God. Because both of those things take place when you have glory. Glory draw and shows the, the worthiness of this glory. And there's this, this the awesomeness of the, it's, it's, it's radiating out and, and showing the, the worthiness within. Both of those things are true at the glory of God. And Jesus Christ had all of the glory of God, but yet he says, I'm not going to display that. In my simple mind, I think of, you know, Somehow, the display of God's glory is turned off. I remember going to a, a store one time. I think I was going to do some printing. And I knew they closed at a certain hour. And so I was five minutes early. And when I came and drove up to the place to get out of my car, I know that the person inside saw me. And they came running over, and they locked the door. And they turned the sign, and it was open, and it went like that, and off. And um, I said in my heart, that's the difference between an employee and an owner. <laughs> but, but I knew that when the light went off and the door was locked, closed. And so I didn't go up and start knocking at the door and say, let me in. I'm, you, you know, it's, I've got five. No, I didn't do any of that. I just looked at that and go, well, uh, there you go. It's turned off. There's a very sense, and this is very crass illustration, but there's a very real sense of when Jesus Christ comes and he takes the form of a servant and he becomes in the likeness of man. And it says being formed in the, in the appearance as a man. Somehow, and I just say somehow, it's as if Jesus Christ took and he turned off the sign of glory. And he caused the weightiness of his glory not to be that which is drawn to him. And he comes as a man. And that's an amazing thing for God himself to do. It's, it's like Jesus Christ appearing so that he um, can be rejected. There can be people look at him and say, you claim to be the son of God? I don't think so. You know, you don't look like a son of God, and what makes you different from this fellow over here? What makes you different from any of the disciples? Because you look just the same as they are. So why are you saying that you're the son of God? And Jesus Christ stood before them and simply declared who he was without the display, without the verification. And uh, the one time when he was up on the Mount of Transfiguration and he was transfigured before the disciples, they saw him in his glory. And if Jesus Christ, uh, you feel like saying he, that's, he should have come in that display the whole time, but he didn't. He's turned off. And that part of him was, was, the door was locked, and he comes as a man. And that's all I know. You know, I can, you can debate and talk about it, but that's what he, he does when he comes. But what's interesting is that leads to the fulfillment of his ministry and his saying to the Father, the glory needs to be turned back on. The full display of my glory needs to be turned back on for a variety of reasons, including the glorification of us. But that glory needs to be turned back on because it is only right for it to be on. And the whole of my ministry have only done any, I've done nothing but affirm that that glory should be turned on. And the radiance of that glory go forth. 
And that's why it's so wonderful when you turn to the end of the Scriptures and, and you see Jesus Christ coming again, He's going to come in all of His glory. He's not going to come in such a way that you look at Him and say, well, He, did, he, he just looks like a man. He's going to come in His glory. And it's, it says that we shall see Him as He is. We shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is, because He's going to glorify us. That's the whole point of His work, is that we should be forgiven, and that we should be cleansed, and that we should be sanctified, and we should be made holy, and that we should be glorified, not in our glory, but in His glory. And so we shall see Him, and we shall be in glory, and we shall be with Him. But I'll tell you something that's very interesting when you think about this. You know, if my understanding of uh, dispensationalism is true, and my understanding of the kingdom of God is true, there's a, a thousand-year millennial reign of Jesus Christ upon the earth. What's going to be interesting is He's going to be upon the earth not like He was in His earthly ministry. He's going to be upon the earth in the full display of His glory. Furthermore, the Scriptures say that we shall be with Him wherever He is. Where He is there, we, may, we shall be with Him. We shall forever be with the Lord. So it seems to me that in this kingdom where you have people upon the earth, you're going to have a very interesting kind of situation because you're going to have Jesus Christ in all of His glory upon the earth, and you will also have probably glorified saints, perhaps, I say perhaps, having access both to heaven and earth. So these saints upon, these people upon the earth that will all be Christians when it begins will look upon Jesus Christ and they will know that He is the Son of God because He will have the full gravity of being the Son of God and the radiance of being the Son of God, and they will know that this is the Son of God. Furthermore, they will see the glorified saints. And most of the individuals in this millennial kingdom, if what is said in Scripture is accurate about this, will live for that entire thousand-year period of time. But what's interesting is many people will be born to those individuals living upon the earth, those who are not in glorified form. And they will come to the end of that time, and the Scripture says there's a rebellion. Satan is released, and there will be a rebellion. And if you think that if Jesus Christ would have come, if Jesus Christ would only have come, come to the earth and not as a man but as in all of his glory, certainly everyone would have believed him and everyone would have received him. But what the kingdom of God is going to demonstrate is even when you have Jesus Christ in glorified form, the heart of man is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked and those who are in natural form, there will be those, not all, but there will be those who rebel against Him. Full well knowing that He is, He has the gravity of God and the radiance of God. This is God. And they'll say, we don't want Him. But that's also what happened in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Because they were in a state of goodness and they saw the radiance of God's glory. They walked with God. And they said, we don't want that. We want something for ourselves. So this is, you look at this passage and you say, this is not a passage that is written to tell us all about how Jesus Christ went about not displaying his glory and not displaying his worthiness of that glory. It just simply is using that as an illustration saying, this is what God has done. And then Jesus Christ further, he humbled himself even to the point of death upon the cross. So he took the form of man, then he took the lowest form because he was willing to suffer and die in our place for our sins. And that's the last statement. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself even become obedient to the point of death, even death upon the cross. And this is not just dying as a martyr. It's dying as a penal substitute. It's dying as a sin bearer. And this is another wonderful thing that we will never fully understand is how the Son of God became sin for us and died in our place for our sins, the God the Father pouring out His wrath. The agony of Jesus Christ upon the cross is that spiritual agony between Father and Son. I know it's true. I know it happened. It's beyond my comprehension in, in the sense of how it all takes place. But I know that Jesus Christ comes to earth and he takes the form of man and, and becomes as a slave 
And being found in appearance, he humbled himself even to the point of death upon the cross. He becomes the exquisite, the perfect example of humility. And he says that's the attitude that we are to have toward one another. I say by his grace and for his glory, that's how we'll have it. But uh, the only way we can have that attitude is for God to graciously enable us. That's what we are to call him to do. God help us. You call us to be like Jesus Christ? God help us. And we shall love one another, and we shall submit ourselves to God, and we shall put others first and set others first as God enables us. Because where we get our glory from is from Him. And where we get our grace from is from Him. And where we get all that glorifies God is we get it from Him. So God says, get that attitude that Christ has. You get that from him. And walk in humility and love toward one another. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this encouraging word that you have given to us in Scripture. That you not only call us to be humble, but you call us to be humble with the humility that was displayed in Jesus Christ and is found from Jesus Christ. So when you call us to be humble like Christ, we say, God, help us. God, give us a heart to be humble. You've commanded us to be humble. Give us what you command, and we shall walk in the truth. And Lord, we recognize our responsibility, but we recognize the one who enables us, and we call upon you to give us humility, and give us love for one another in such a way that you receive the glory. And the weightiness of all of our love for one another and humility that we display to one another is traceable ultimately to you. Because our desire is for you to be glorified in us. So we pray that you will provide. As we live the Christian life, we pray that you will enable us to live for you. As we depend upon you, we look for the grace and the resource that only you can give to us and you've promised to give to us in Jesus Christ. So help us to live for you in a manner that is pleasing in your sight and brings glory and honor to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the evening sermon at Hillcrest Bible Church. In addition to our website, hillcrestbible.org, you can follow us on Facebook under Hillcrest Bible Church or through Twitter under Hillcrest Bible. You can also subscribe to the Sermon Podcast on our Sermons page or directly in iTunes.